There was no federally coordinated response for COVID-19 control and suppression. And that's why we have this horrible situation now where more than 250,000 Americans have lost their lives with projections that another 150,000 will lose their lives between now and a week or two after the inauguration. That's Dr. Peter Hotez speaking, an American scientist, pediatrician, and advocate in the fields of global health, vaccines, and neglected tropical diseases. Most recently, Hotez, professor and co-director at Texas Children's Hospital, has emerged as one of the most trusted voices for the pandemic. With cases surging across the U.S. and talk of multiple vaccines, we turn to him for answers. There is this very aggressive anti-vaccine, anti-science movement that started around 2014, 2015. And it was this, what they called health freedom, medical freedom movement that government can't tell us what to do. Government is spying on us. Um, You can't tell us to vaccinate our kids. So up to half of Americans will refuse COVID-19 vaccines, even if they're made available. And you see some of the lead anti-vaccine groups in the country already gearing up. I'm Justin Beck, founder and CEO of Contact World. I'm here with my co-hosts, Catherine Delson and Deepti Pava. And over the coming months, we'll be talking to scientists, researchers, celebrities, experts, anyone who's been affected by COVID, and getting to the bottom of how we can improve public health together. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. So... While this might be our first time recording together, it's not our first time talking about these very important issues. I think it would be super helpful for our listeners to understand why the three of us have come together for this show. Catherine, you want to get us started? Sure. So, you know, in my work as a lawyer, I've seen a lot of disparities between the representation of certain communities. Uh, A lot of them are underserved, underrepresented And you would think as a business attorney, the disparity wouldn't be so great, but there is a disparity there. There is a gap. And I try to fill in the gap to the extent that I can and provide the services that they need. Being a part of Contact World is a chance for me to further do my part and give a voice to the marginalized, give them access to the public health they deserve, the access that they really have the right to. How about you, Deepti? Like you know, I have a background in human-centered design and bottom-up innovations, and I have been working on privacy-preserving technology solutions for public health, I would say, almost since the start of this pandemic. What I saw was a huge need for these solutions that put people first, and really inclusion and accessibility at all levels of public health. And that is why I'm so excited to be part of Contact World, where we design solutions with empathy for people and for systems. And this is exactly why we designed this podcast as well, right? As a way to invite discussions on these topics and hopefully empower people with honest conversations about health systems. So Deep D, one hot topic we'll hear about consistently is vaccines. Uh, I'm worried about trust and people taking them in the United States. What are people's impressions about vaccines in Europe? I mean, I believe the vaccines are coming in and you can really see a huge excitement as well. There is already some distribution centers being built up specifically in Germany at the moment. But there's a huge question out there as well. How will that 
distribution and administration of these vaccines would happen. And I believe this is the same also there in the States, right? Catherine, how about you? What do you think uh, about this in the U.S.? Well, I think we're ringing the bell a little too soon for the most part, where people are thinking, hey, this is it. We can go and party now. So we want to exercise a bit of caution. Yes, there are vaccines out there. But again, the important point is how is it going to be distributed and how safe and effective those vaccines are going to be for everyone involved? The biggest thing from my perspective is, are people even going to take them? In the United States, I guess, you know, 40 or 50 percent of people at this time may not even trust taking them whatsoever. There's so much misinformation out there about it, right? I mean, who to trust, what people to trust. I mean, there's so much new data, research. And I think one thing we haven't thought about is how are we actually empowering our public health agencies to communicate this right kind of information, right, for the benefit of all. Dr. Hotez mentioned there was no coordinated federal response, right, which was really needed around COVID-19. And this is certainly not the last pandemic or the epidemic that we see. And there are going to be more and we need to learn from what has happened. I'm really worried that the world is going to go back to disregarding public health and public health agencies the way that we have for so long. Now that we have a new administration, it's the perfect time to really uh, equal the playing field somewhat for public health agencies and entities. I definitely think that we want to push for the changes that we want right now and not wait and look back and wonder what could have been done instead of doing something right now. Right. On, on one hand, you have technology companies that are trying to solve these problems of humanity. And then there's a matter of actually having people use the technology. And it seems like so many companies are failing on actually having people use technology. And I think that that's something that we're here to solve. Exactly. I mean, the adoption is the biggest problem. You've seen so many solutions out there, but nobody is able to get them adopted. And one of the reasons being is that people are not really understanding the human centricity that is required to design such solutions. And that's where we're really trying to solve these issues here. Yeah, we're really excited about how Contact World, the podcast, really fits into all this because this is the voice of the people. Our listeners are also people that are affected by the pandemic and also other social and racial issues that you know plague society. So we're really excited. Uh, this is the voice of the people. Exactly. All right. So in this first episode of Contact World, we're exploring the impact of COVID on our local communities and how families navigate the immense stress the pandemic has created. So today we're talking to Robert Ellington in Charleston, South Carolina, somebody that's in the trenches. Catherine, why don't you tell us more about your conversation with Robert? Absolutely, Justin. It was such an eye-opener. Robert is such a servant. He works with Halos, an organization that really helps people in kinship care. And Robert really does a great job with helping his community, connecting them with the resources that they need so that they can help the children and also help the adults through this hard situation with COVID-19. So tell me a little bit about your role in the Charleston community as an educator, community organizer. I come from a family of people who've done service in some way. My father is a retired police officer. My mom's a nurse. My sister is a social worker. So service has always been a part of what I've done. And I've always weaved it into educating people. And I've been doing that for several years. And now... Working with Halos, I've been with Halos for two years, and 
I'm a success coach. Okay. Before you even tell me about what you do as a success coach, tell me about what Halos is. Halos started out in 1997 by Dr. Eve Spratt. And it started because she was trying to do things for foster care kids. But around 2007, they realized we got more kids in kinship care than foster care. So the mission is to assist kinship families. Sometimes agencies just assume that they have everything they need to do it. And they're not necessarily equipped to do all of that. Financially, it's a strain. Emotionally, it's a strain. Because now they're encountering things that they didn't have to deal with with their own children. This is a whole new world for some grandparents. So our job is to make resources available to those families. And my job is to provide emotional support as well as helping them with resources. Because sometimes they just want to vent. And I'm here to listen. So when you think about kinship care, what should people know about that? I mean, we we might be introducing this concept to people for the very first time. Kinship is any family that's composed of people taking care of children that aren't necessarily theirs. It could be fictive kin, which could be a family friend, or it could be uncle, auntie, granny, just relatives that are taking care of children that aren't theirs. And they're overlooked because we've been doing kinship forever. We just didn't have a name for it. We always had somebody who stayed with grandma or grew up with the grandparents or grew up with aunties or even with older siblings. And in popular culture, there are many people that became famous, that are celebrities, that are politicians and whatnot, that come from kinship situations. President Obama is a perfect example. He grew up with his grandparents, right? LL Cool J, Oprah Winfrey. You know, there's tons of people all over the world that have grown up in that situation. I wanted to understand what success looked like for Robert in a pre-COVID world so we could in turn understand how deep the impact the pandemic has had on his community. If I've got 10 caregivers I'm talking to, success means 10 different things. So before COVID, I would do home visits. So I'd go and I'd, I'd sit down and I'd talk to a caregiver couple times a month. But during COVID, it changed everything. Obviously, there's no more home visits. The goals are still the same, but now here's the different challenge. Now we have a caregiver who's in her 70s, who isn't necessarily tech savvy, who now has grandchildren doing virtual learning. So walking them through that or linking them with resources with people who can help them walk them through those things for the virtual learning. Sometimes the goal might be, I need some time for myself. I need some self-care. And finding those resources in a pandemic is a lot harder than before. What is success? It depends on who you're asking. When COVID shut everything down, I was working with caregivers that I had already met physically, right? So they knew who I was. I knew what their tone, inflection, like I had an idea about where they were as far as their moods and whatnot. Let's say you got the person who's really upset, but they they hide it. They mask it. They can mask it with their voice. But if they're sitting in front of you, you could see tears welling up. You could see the knee moving back and forth. You could see the uneasy, like there's so many things. So it's changed how I'm trying to figure out how to help people. Instead of saying, are you okay? And this transcends 
kinship care or what the work I'm doing. This is like just for humans. Instead of just saying, are you okay? Because that gives a person an easy out. They can say, yeah, I'm fine. That's easy to say. What can I help you with? What do you need? You get specific. If I say, what do you need? Now they're like, oh, okay, what do I need? Hmm, I need some diapers. I need somebody to listen to me. I need daycare. It changes the dynamic because just forming those relationships with those people, they know that they can still call Robert or call somebody at Halos, and I know that they'll step in and do something. How can I help you? What do you need? I'm going to use that. What are the long-term impacts that you're seeing on the families? As far as the pandemic, I'm seeing a lot more stress. I'm seeing a lot more dips in mood, depression, seeing a lot more of that. I mean, I worked with caregivers before COVID who were depressed because, you know, they were in this new situation and it was overwhelming. But now it's a whole other level of overwhelming for them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's exacerbated things to another level. Thankfully, Halos has support groups and virtual support groups that happen like twice a month. And we encourage caregivers to talk to each other because, you know, I'm a parent, but I'm not a kinship caregiver. If it's coming from granny to granny to great granny to uncle, that these people that are doing the work themselves, it's different. I feel like it's more of a positive impact. In a recent article published as part of the COVID-19 Resources on Health Equity, it shared how marginalized and minoritized communities have and will suffer more acutely during this COVID-19 crisis. In Chicago, for example, 7 in 10 patients who died from COVID-19 in the city were African-American, despite the group only representing 30% of the population. I asked Robert about the communities he serves and what he sees in terms of health equity. The majority of the people we do work with are minority women, basically a marginalized group who are underserved. When we do our intake, we try to cover all the bases. So we find out what benefits they're already receiving. Do you get Medicaid? Are the kids on Medicaid? Are you SNAP? You get food stamps? What, what do you have? And sometimes they're like, the answer to all of those is no. I have none of that stuff. They may not have access to public health, right? So we are all trained to take them through something they used to call the benefit bank. So we can actually apply for benefits with them. So we don't allow them to just kind of swing in the wind trying to figure out what's going to happen next. We try to make sure that there are fewer obstacles in their way as far as the healthcare. You know, the underserved community does suffer a lot. How else are they affected in terms of people needing more resources? Is there a change there? Have you noticed a difference? Well, with COVID shutting a lot of businesses down, a lot of those people aren't working, right? So now if they can get unemployment, then they're okay for a little while, but now there's other things happening at the same time. Luckily, we're connected with other organizations that have grants, that have funds available to help people with rent, with utilities, with food. 
Think about the single grandparents or moms that have a child or have children with special needs. As a matter of fact, I'm working with a caregiver who has an autistic child, and she's currently out of work because of the pandemic. So she had to come home, and her grandson couldn't go to school, but he needs special attention. And she can't work from home while he's at home. So she's caring for a child who's autistic, who has some behavioral challenges, and she's trying to figure out what her next move is. Like, in any other world, if we weren't dealing with this pandemic, she could have him stay with her cousin up the street during the day, and she could work. If we weren't in a pandemic, he would be at school with the people who are equipped to help him with learning and with his behavior and everything else. That was very difficult for her, and that's still very difficult for her. Absolutely. What kind of help do you think they would need in order to feel secure about reporting if they are, in fact, affected by COVID-19? The way people talk about COVID, it's almost like this plague. And so in their minds, it's like, I'm, I can't tell people because then it's going to change how people look at me or the perception. So it's like the reframing of it and helping them understand how important it is for them to let it be known for the safety of the very children that they've taken in, right? You're doing this for the children. We need to raise these people up that are doing this amazing work by taking care of these children and making sure that these children are in a safe place and are nurturing these children and providing everything that they need. Perfectly said. Anyone who's listening to this podcast, you know, how do they reach out? We are online. You can check out the website. We're at charlestonhalos.org. Great. And, and I appreciate the work that you do. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. In contrast to Catherine's conversation with Robert Ellington in Charleston, shining an important light on our local communities, in my conversation with Dr. Hotez, we explore the science behind the pandemic and what we need to understand about vaccines as we look forward. Thanks again for your time today, Dr. Hotez. Uh, I was looking at my notes from our last conversation in April or May, and you were right about literally everything regarding the trajectory of the pandemic from lockdown fatigue to rampant spread. What has surprised you the most about our nation during this pandemic? Well, certainly the most disappointing part is our inability to launch a national COVID-19 response program, control program. It was left to the states in a sort of haphazard way. There was backup support for supply chain management, providing ventilators and manufacturing and FEMA support, and now, of course, vaccines. But there was no federally coordinated response for COVID-19 control and suppression. And that's why we have this horrible situation now where more than 250,000 Americans have lost their lives with projections that another 150,000 will lose their lives between now and a week or two after the inauguration. What would you say has surprised you about the people of our nation? Well, you know, it brought out the best and the worst. Um, I think the healthcare profession was absolutely heroic. So were the scientists, you know, sharing data, you know, the healthcare professionals, nurses, PAs, DOs, MDs, LPNs, 
radiology techs, people working in the ICU hospital staff, you know, all put their lives on the line to save lives. And I think the numbers are 1,700 healthcare professionals lost their life in the U.S. this year. And on the other side was the lack of concern by the White House to protect those healthcare professional lives by allowing surges on our intensive care units, which is now getting to the worst ever across the country. So as bad as New York City was in March and April, now we're seeing this play out times dozens in cities and rural areas across the U.S. And that disinformation campaign that came out of the White House that downplayed the severity of the epidemic and tried to attribute COVID deaths to other causes and fake concepts of herd immunity and discrediting masks. And then you saw those millions of Americans in an effort to show allegiance to that disinformation to the White House, you know, totally buying into it and also being defiant of masks and social distancing. And it just turned into a monstrosity in terms of loss of life. So going forward, other than having hopefully a a much more favorable response as a nation and a coordinated response with the Biden administration, what did we learn from this for public health broadly? and, And how can we better resource public health agencies? Well, I think we have to get ready for the next epidemic pandemic because we know at least there's new coronaviruses every decade. So first of all, a careful assessment of what went horribly wrong. Clearly, the concept of a coronavirus task force was a flawed one and letting it run out of Washington, D.C. It was too politicized from the outset and the quality was not what it needed to be. And so figuring out how to move that to Atlanta letting CDC run its Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, putting them in charge, I think is going to be absolutely imperative. Having said that, there were clearly some marked deficiencies within CDC, right? They failed to detect the entry of the virus from Europe into New York City, the disaster with the diagnostic tests, which we still never totally got right, failing to be more assertive in mounting that national response. Why did all those things happen? So having a frank assessment of that in order to fix it, that's going to be important as well. That makes sense. So a lot of your work, you mentioned more coronaviruses, for instance. A lot of your work centers on marginalized populations throughout the world. Can you explain to our listeners what a neglected tropical disease is? It's a term that we helped coin in the early 2000s in response to the Millennium Development Goals There was recognition in part through the work of Jeffrey Sachs and Dean Jameson and others that infectious diseases both occur in the setting of poverty and cause poverty. And infectious disease reduction itself is a anti-poverty measure. In fact, we call our neglected disease vaccines anti-poverty vaccines. And so we got together and rebranded some of the most common parasitic infections like hookworm and schistosomiasis and leishmaniasis and Chagas disease as neglected tropical diseases to establish a new framework, including a package of medicines that's now been delivered to a billion people annually, which is really exciting. So why do COVID-19 and neglected tropical diseases disproportionately affect marginalized communities? Can you explain your thoughts on that? Well, with neglected tropical diseases in general, why is poverty such a major risk factor? I mean, it has to do with all of the things that go associated with it, lack of access to health care, lack of access to clean water and sanitation and hygiene, 
lack of adequate housing, which allows insect vectors and others to enter. I think all of those are factors. But, you know, the truth is we don't really fully understand that link between poverty and also why these diseases cause poverty. We think it's probably because of their long-term effects on child development and worker productivity and the health of girls and women is important. And then there's that COVID-19 link also, because one of the things that we noticed was high rates of COVID-19 in our low-income communities, for instance, here in Houston. COVID-19 has caused historic decimation of Hispanic communities across the southern states. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they represent essential workers and family-owned businesses, and then also multi-generational dwellings where you have you know, the 20-year-old out on construction sites and family-owned businesses and the parents, but then the grandparents live there. And I think that created a lot of disease exposure as well. But I testified to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus about this to really drum home the fact that this is one of the hidden parts of the COVID epidemic in the U.S. And also among low-income populations everywhere. Uh, There's this concept out there that I call blue marble health, the poor living among the wealthy, disproportionately account for a lot of the world's poverty-related diseases. And when you actually add up things like leprosy and leishmaniasis and schistosomiasis and Chagas disease, it's overwhelmingly the poor living among the G20 countries that accounts for the highest rates of these diseases. And COVID-19 is going by that same playbook. Our guest during our human interest segment works to support kinship caregivers, extended family who raise children on their own. And you mentioned how it's disproportionately affecting multi-generational families. What have you witnessed with COVID-19 affecting the family structure? Well, it's highly disruptive, right? I mean, if you know, especially in the low-income neighborhoods where people don't have the opportunity to work via Skype and Zoom and at home remotely, they have to physically be at the workplace. They're exposed, and even though often young people handle the virus well, we know that about half of the COVID-19 cases that are asymptomatic are responsible for the lion's share of the transmission of this virus. And then, you know, unfortunately, people who are susceptible at home, either because of age or because of underlying comorbidities such as obesity or diabetes or heart disease or renal disease, they're the ones really getting hit hard. Right, And so you see this every day. I mean, the Houston Health Department, where I am, they put out a list every day of the people who've lost their lives the day before from COVID-19, and it provides sex, age, and race or ethnicity. And every day it's Hispanic, 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 Black, Black, Hispanic, Hispanic, just decimating these communities. It's really just heartbreaking. You know, speaking of Harris County Public Health, I had some good conversations with them earlier this year in trying to improve the technology for the local health agency there. I was shocked to learn that the health agency actually receives inbound faxes of COVID cases. And it seems to me the more I learn that local health agencies are just a dearth of modern technologies. And unfortunately, it feels like we have under-resourced health agencies and expect them to move mountains and actually prevent things like this from happening, but we don't provide them with any resources. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, not only are health departments under-resourced, the pay, the stability, 
is really inadequate. We politicize health departments so that people who work in health departments don't feel comfortable speaking out when they see social injustices or if they see that important uh, health issues are not being addressed or silenced by political leaders and elected leaders. We certainly saw that throughout the United States, uh, that people felt they were going to lose their job if they pointed out things that weren't getting done to combat COVID-19. We don't invest in in our healthcare infrastructure. We have a highly fragmented system. And of course, it's incredibly expensive uh, as well in terms of hospitalizations. It needs a massive overhaul, whether or not anybody has the political will to do that. And not only at the hospital level, but also at the public health agency level. I learned a startling statistic kind of makes my blood boil. It seems that our public health system gets as little as 2% of the funding of provider care. And it makes sense where we are today when they don't have any funding. Inadequate resources, lack of funding, but also that political suppression, which we hear about, you know, on the big cable news networks like CNN and MSNBC with regards to CDC. But what we don't hear is all the suppression that's going on at the state, county, and city level, particularly in the middle part of the country, uh, particularly in a lot of our red states, unfortunately, including where I am in Texas. It's been highly politicized and people are fearful about speaking out because, remember, the narrative is COVID-19 is a hoax and deaths are due to other comorbidities and all you need to do is reach 22% herd immunity and it's going to go away. And when our healthcare providers and our public health experts point out the inconvenient truth that that's all BS, then they get targeted. Just like I get targeted and have been targeted all year. It's really unfortunate. Speaking of the rural locations, you introduced me to NACHO earlier this year, and I've learned that more than half of local health agencies in the U.S. literally only have two or three staff members, no contact tracing capacity, and they may even be relied upon in vaccine distribution. So you mentioned political will. What would you say to state and federal decision makers about resourcing health agencies? Well, you know, and there was some effort to higher contact tracers eventually in the state of Texas, for instance, but it's a fraction of what we needed and not in time. So for instance, you know, we had that big summer surge across the southern states, Florida, the Gulf Coast states, Texas, uh, then going into the Southwest all during July and August. And the problems were twofold. One, they opened prematurely before we really got down to containment levels. So we started out at a pretty high level. And then they still hadn't even had the public health infrastructure in place to allow you to do that safely. Eventually, we slowly got up to speed in terms of contact tracing, but there was not that guidance from the federal government to say, hey, this is what you need to do. It was left to the states, and the states never had the epidemiologic horsepower and the models to know exactly what to do and the timing of when to do it. And then they also could have used the political cover of the CDC and federal government because, you know, the governors themselves were being buffeted by all these political forces, especially from political extremists on the far right, you know, who just wanted to open her up and thought it was a hoax. And they needed the political cover of the CDC say, hey, I understand what you're saying, but Centers for Disease Control is saying if 
we do this now, X number of Floridians or Georgians or Texans or Oklahomans are going to lose their lives. And that conversation never took place because there was never that federal guidance. You mentioned contact tracing. Another thing that really shocked me about our country is people are comfortable with doing just about anything from their phone. You know, you can order DoorDash in minutes and, you know, next day shipping. Why is it that contact tracing is too far of a bridge to cross where people don't trust it or it's been difficult to reach people? Well, I think there's the practical matter, the fact that people get so much spam now on their phone and phone calls. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I often don't answer a, a strange phone number I've never seen before. So I think that's clearly a component of it. But the other is there is this very aggressive anti-vaccine, anti-science movement that started around 2014, 2015, initially out of Orange County in California, but then really amplified in Texas. And it was this, what they called health freedom, medical freedom movement that government can't tell us what to do. Government is spying on us. You can't tell us to vaccinate our kids. So that was the form the anti-vaccine movement took starting in around 2015. And it got linked to, again, political extremism, got funded by groups that support the Tea Party and others. And they became well-funded, well-organized movements that resulted in huge numbers of kids in Texas, Oklahoma, elsewhere being denied access to their vaccines. And then what happened in 2020, those same health freedom, medical freedom groups started glomming on protests against masks and social distancing and contact tracing seeing it as interference. And then, then of course, the conspiracy theories followed, right? That Bill Gates or me or Tony Fauci were going to try to implant chips by vaccinating into people. And somehow it all got all tied up with 5G. And um, <laughs> so, you know, you start trying to explain and try to implement things like contact tracing apps just made it all the more difficult. And the other piece to this, and, and I tend to be an outlier on it, compared to my colleagues, is to say it's not just a matter of fine-tuning the message or improving the message or even amplifying the message because the message is still floating in bottles in the Atlantic Ocean because they're inundated with this vast anti-science, anti-vaccine media empire now that now dominates the internet. You know, 480 fake anti-vaccine websites all revved up on social media. If you go to Amazon.com website, put books up at the top, press return, you get a scroll down menu at the left that includes health, fitness, and dieting. You click on that, you get vaccinations, and you click on that, it's all fake anti-vaccine books and fake COVID books. So Amazon is one of the leading promoters of anti-science. And then on top of that, you have the Russians with their weaponized health communications and bots and trolls flooding our internet with disinformation. We're seeing now those health freedom groups have been now going to Western Europe this summer and uh, assisting in protests against masks and vaccines in Berlin, Germany, and Paris, and London. And in Berlin, you know, the CBS News report, it was linked to QAnon and even neo-Nazi groups. So it's taken on this very dark turn. And as I hear myself saying this, you have to be really careful how you explain it because, you know, you start talking about far-right-wing extremist groups and QAnon and neo-Nazis and the Russians. And right. uh, and, it's, and it all sounds very unhinged, even though there's definitely evidence for it all. So how we 
dismantle the anti-vaccine, anti-science confederacy or empire is is a big question. And so far, nobody's shown much appetite for doing it. The federal government has not shown any interest in doing the necessary things like creating an interagency task force around this. So these things continue to grow and, um, and it's gotten massive now. What threat do you think that this poses for the vaccination of our country surrounding COVID-19? Well, we've got the surveys from Reuters and Associated Press and Pew Research saying that up to half of Americans will refuse COVID-19 vaccines even if they're made available. And I think some of that will go away. It's just a normal response to all the politicization of vaccines that we've had over this past year. And as people start getting vaccinated without any untoward reaction, I think people will start adopting vaccines, especially if we start launching a communications plan, which Operation Warp Speed has not done. But we still have this anti-vaccine aggression, particularly around COVID-19 vaccines. And you see some of the lead anti-vaccine groups uh, in the country already gearing up. You have national groups like Children's Health Defense, led by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. You know, if you go to their Twitter site, it's conspiracies around me. He calls me the original gangster villain, the OG villain. So that's who you're talking to today. Unbelievable. And people believe it. So there's actually targeting a scientist as well, which is a big problem. How can our uh, listeners and our show support the public health narrative? Well, I think just getting educated is a big piece. And, you know, talking about it on social media, when you see friends put crazy stuff out there on whatever form of social media you use. And also, I think, you know, as scientists, we need to be better informed about what these anti-science movements are. And I've been pushing hard to implement programs of science communication and public engagement in our doctoral and postdoctoral training. It's not even encouraged by universities very much. So I think building that into the DNA of scientific training will help a lot as well. Right. So what recommendations do you have for our listeners about staying safe? Well, just remember, this is the worst part of the epidemic covid Transmission is at a screaming high rate now in the country. We're getting up to 200,000 new cases a day. And remember, that's an underestimate by three or four or five. So we may be up to a million new cases a day. So anytime you bring people together, if in large enough numbers, you will have people with COVID-19 in your house or certainly in airports and bus stations. Georgia Tech just put out sort of a nice assessment tool to basically say, based on level of transmission, what happens if you bring nine people together, 10 people together, 50 people together? You know, it's pretty sobering how much COVID-19 there is. So, you know, this is the time to identify your social distancing unit and keep that to a small group. And remember, it's not forever. We have vaccines coming. Just don't be reckless and avoid ICU surges in your community, and we'll get through this. But unfortunately, the numbers are still looking awful. What would you just say to somebody that's afraid to take the vaccine, even if they're not necessarily an anti-vaxxer? The only thing that we know can keep you out of your ICU if you're exposed to COVID-19 is having virus-neutralizing antibodies in your system, and they all work that way. And don't overthink it. Save your life and your family's life. So that was the first episode of the Contact World podcast. So what is Contact World? Why did we make this podcast? We made this podcast because we're on a mission to improve public health and health equity 
and to have a positive impact on society, especially in marginalized communities who suffer the weight of our country's prior decisions. But we're here to change that one episode at a time. Over the coming weeks, we'll hear from health experts, scientists, real people with real stories. So make sure you join us for the next episode of Contact World. I'm Justin Beck, and I'll see you next time. Listen to Contact World, the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.